We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Ave Hey, welcome everybody. Steve with Sense Fidelity. Coming at you with episode 8 on our series on socialism, Monsignor New Deal with Michael Graney. Thank you again, Michael, for being here and doing this. Oh, it's great to be here. I'm having a lot of fun doing these. I, I have a lot of fun listening to them. <laughs> <laughs> I hope other people do. I haven't been run over on the street yet, so I guess I'm doing okay. <laughs> been read out of the pulpit yet either yes <laughs> no 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 targets on your back yet no although a friend of mine in iowa said every time i make one of these astonishing statements he says oh so you painted another target on your back didn't you <laughs> i'm sure last week's if you haven't seen the guys if you haven't seen the fulton sheen one yet i'm sure that added a bigger one well i, I was impressed at the way it racked up the numbers it got more than a thousand views in less than 24 hours which for me is phenomenal Shane will do that to you yeah <laughs> couldn't we stick sort of Fulton Sheen in every title somewhere <laughs> or another like Fulton Sheen is not in this episode <laughs> but what is in this episode is the, the, the stock market crash in the Great Depression which is why we titled it Monsignor New Deal who has an alternative title, The Right Reverend New Dealer, which was how people were referring to Monsignor John A. Ryan for his support of the thing, the policies. In fact, a lot of people today are still convinced that Monsignor Ryan had a great deal to do with the New Deal itself. Sorry to disillusion you, but the followers of Ryan are split two ways on this. Either he had no influence or he had all the influence. I incline toward no influence. The New Deal went the way that his programs were going. It was a, a semi-impractical application of his principles, but they just happened to coincide because they are both based on the same principles, not because Ryan influenced it. In fact, FDR was basically a user. He found Ryan, and as we'll find out today, Father Edward Coughlin very useful to bring Catholics in, even though he didn't particularly care for Catholics or Jews, meaning FDR. Mm -hmm. Eleanor is a whole different story. We can do a whole thing on how I appreciate what Eleanor Roosevelt managed to accomplish. She should have been president, actually. <laughs> we won't get into that. Uh, but in, of course, in 1929, as everyone knows, or at least they should, unless you're in a jaywalking episode when nobody seems to know anything. Uh, Never that... underestimate the power of stupid, as Jay would say. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been watching some of his videos on YouTube, and I thought, you know, I can't believe this. I think this is staged. He made this up. But then I realized, nah, I probably didn't. Anyway. <laughs> You hope yeah, they made it up, but it's not made up. <laughs> you wish you'd made it up. Uh, but anyway, 
the stock market crash triggered the Great Depression. In a manner of speaking, I have a whole lecture on that, which we won't get into, but the fact was that the Great Depression started soon afterwards. And to many people, it seemed like it, it turned Catholic social teaching from a purely academic subject into one that was popular and immediate in its application. In other words, Catholic social teaching suddenly became relevant to people besides academics who had been fighting over it for decades. Now, of course, the, the crash itself was caused, in my opinion, by following a rapid rise in share prices caused by immense money creation for speculation. And then, of course, the stock market crashed when the bubble burst. That's your economics lecture for the day. Even though I deal in a lot of economics, I will spare you the rest of it. Now to sports. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, I belong to Athletics Anonymous. Anytime I get the urge to do something physical, they send over somebody to smoke and drink with you until the urge passes. <laughs> I of like course, it. <laughs> all, all my relatives, of course, are extremely athletic. My, my niece made Sports Illustrated. I used to play junior, uh, basketball in college, and my junior college teammates text me all up, say, hey, let's play a game with the uh, us. We were class of 1999 versus the new guy, the guys playing this year. I'm going, you know what? I don't think insurance companies would insure us on that one. Uh, how about we all just grab some booze, you know, like scotch and whiskey, and uh, smoke some Monte Cristos and call it a day? <laughs> yeah. Well, my, my younger sister is in the, her University Athletic Hall of Fame. Uh, yeah, that's right, just make me feel uh, this big. Uh, of course, all my brothers who were in the military got their sharpshooter medals and everything else. I thought, I can't hit the broadside of a barn with anything. <laughs> but anyway, back to our story. <laughs> uh, the guy who really influenced the, the policies of the New Deal was John Maynard Keynes. Uh, and unfortunately, he did all the wrong things. He artificially stimulated demand without adding new production. Uh, I said I finished the economics lecture, but I have to give this one in. Uh, when you have the production of marketable goods and services and the amount of money going, rising and falling at the same rate, you have neither inflation nor deflation. But what Keynes decided to do was you need inflation in order to stimulate demand for the products that aren't clearing. Unfortunately, there is a, what he did was violate Say's law, which he Say's law of markets, which he misstated. Say's law is very misleadingly stated as production equals uh, consumption, supply e supply equals demand, and therefore supply generates its own demand and demand its own supply, which brings everything in an, in an ideal situation, it's all in balance. And so, as Jean-Baptiste Say said, and I probably misstated the whole thing there, uh, tried to speak off the top of my head, the solution to unsold goods and services is not to create you know, demand artificially, but for other people to produce so that they can trade what they produce for what others have produced. In other words, production stimulates demand Demand doesn't stimulate production. Yeah, the well, broken the broken glass production. theory. Yeah. Break anyway. the break the glass. All of a sudden, you got a new job. You didn't really produce anything. You just had to redo that's the glass. That's Keynesianism. Yeah. In other words, overproduce in order to have surpluses to stimulate. It, it's 
Did we get interrupted again? <laughs> uh, what Keynes did was artificially stimulate demand without adding new production. This was by issuing money, new money backed by government debt rather than existing goods and services or future production. And when you have massive money creation for consumption without a matching increase in production, what you get is inflation. And this eventually caused what they called the depression within the depression that lasted from 1937 to 1939. Uh, as I said, I'll try not to discuss too much in economics today, but, it, but it's kind of hard when you're discussing the, the Great Depression. In fact, that was actually the third Great Depression in, in, a, in less than a century, because what you had was uh, prior Great Depressions had not been ended by stimulating demand, but by increasing production. From you, the first Great Depression, the first depression that was called the Great Depression was from 1873 to 1878. And we won't get into the causes, but it increased what brought it out of, what brought the country out of the Great Depression of the 1870s was increased production from the homesteads, from the settlement of the West, which increased demand everywhere. What you had was you had increased demand for the marketable goods and services, the, ma the machinery and other things produced in the East. And of course, in the East, you had increased demand for the agricultural products, you know, the, the wheat and the beef and everything else produced in the West. And in 1893 and 1898, for reasons we won't get into, the country had the second Great Depression, so-called. And what brought that out of it was crop failure in Europe at the same time that you had bumper crops of wheat in the United States in 1897 and 1898. Now that's your economic history lesson for today. Now, uh, unfortunately, what brought the country out of the Great Depression of the 1930s, which lasted from 1930 to 1940, in other words, twice as long as the prior Great Depressions, which were brought out of the Depression by increased production, what Keynes tried and which doubled the length of the, the Great Depression of the 1930s was, well, let's increase consumption by increasing demand, by printing money and getting the government into debt. As a result, what you had was a national debt of billions of dollars in peacetime, which had occurred never before in American history. But I guess they figured they were at war with the economy, so they used the best weapon they had, which was let's debauch the currency, inflate it, stimulate demand when there wasn't production. And this would reflate the currency and raise prices again when people don't have the money to pay for it. What brought the country out of the Great Depression, however, was not increased demand from printing money, but increased production required for World War II. And that's what ended the Great Depression of 1930 to 1940. Now, as we found out as you know, in our prior episode with, episodes actually, with uh, Monsignor John A. Ryan, as the third Great Depression began in the 1930s, uh, he was in a good position. He had pretty much neutralized Fulton Sheen at the Catholic University of America, you know, the American Chesterton as they call him sometimes. And he had 
thereby secured his position as the leading social justice advocate in the United States. And eventually this would work into the leading one in the world, but we'll, we're, we're working up to that. <clears throat> now, having consolidated his position, uh, unfortunately, the version of social justice that he was pushing was not really consistent with Catholic social teaching. It was in fact what Catholic social teaching had been explicitly developed to counter and correct. It embodied the new things, you know, socialism, modernism, esotericism, in other words, what they called the new age. And he essentially understood social, Monsignor Ryan understood social justice in the sense that was used by Henri de Saint-Simon. Sorry about that. I can't pronounce these French words. Saint Simon. I'll, I'll go with the English pronunciation. And uh, and Henry George, which the, the essence of it is that the end justifies the means. Don't worry about natural law. Don't worry about religious doctrine. If it gets in the way of what you want, change it. And then convince people that what you changed it to was the original meaning that, for instance, Jesus put in. Because everybody knows Jesus was the first socialist. And we know that, why? Well, because the socialists told us he was. I mean, if you want to assert something long enough and hard enough, somebody's gonna believe it. Now, <clears throat> anyway, uh, but what really kicked off Monsignor Ryan's reputation was the issuance of Quadragesimo Anno on May 15th, 1931. And what happened was that Monsignor Ryan immediately claimed that he had papal endorsement for his theories. And even, and in his autobiography, you, you know, published years later after Bishop Shahan, the former rector at Catholic University of America was dead, he claimed that Bishop Shahan said when he was handed a copy of Quadragesimo Anno two days after its issuance, well, this is a great vindication for John Ryan. Uh, frankly, as I'll get into right now, if Bishop Shahan did say that, it was not only singularly appropriate, it was possibly unethical for him to have said any such thing. But of course, it only appeared years later in Monsignor Ryan's autobiography, and since Bishop Shahan had been dead for around a decade, there was no way he could contradict uh, Monsignor Ryan. And since Monsignor Ryan didn't list any sources as a source for this in his autobiography, uh, it's basically his word against circumstances. Now, would Bishop Shahan actually have made such a statement? Uh, probably not, in my opinion, and I'll, for, for, I'll give you the reasons. Uh, I just lost my place on my notes here, but I'll get right back to it. Okay, I've said it was, it's highly unlikely that uh, Bishop Shahan would have said anything. For one thing, on May 13th, 1931, and as I said in the prior uh, video, keep that date in mind, because that's when Monsignor Ryan testified before the visiting committee at the Catholic University of America sent to investigate certain irregularities there under Monsignor Ryan's uh, leadership at, of the School of Sacred Sciences, the School of Theology, and his petition that he had circulated trying to get James H. Ryan removed as rector of the university. So they sent a visiting committee and during the testimony, 
Monsignor John A. Ryan basically called Fulton Sheen a liar and said he was incompetent and was unfit to teach and that he had made up all these reasons why he had been removed from the school of, the of theology and transferred to philosophy. Now, that was May 13th, 1931. While the visiting committee was still in session carrying out the investigation, Quadragesimo Anno, Anno came out on May 15th. According to Monsignor John A. Ryan, on May 17th, on or about May 17th, in his autobiography said, a few days later, he allegedly made this statement that Quadragesimo Anno vindicated Monsignor John A. Ryan. Now, keep in mind that Bishop Shahan retired in 1927 as rector, although Monsignor John A. Ryan identified him as rector in 1931, which was four years off. Uh, James H. Ryan was the rector, whom Monsignor John A. Ryan had tried to get, get rid of. And during the, after uh, Bishop Shahan's retirement, he continued to associate with his protege, Fulton Sheen. Uh, you, if you look through the newspapers of the time, it says they were celebrating masses, attending convocations and meetings together, attending social events, always in company. And this was, you know, through 1930, 1931, you know, then up to, you know, Bishop Shahan's death in 1932. I think that's when he died. Uh, in any event, on it is highly unlikely that Bishop Shahan would have said anything positive about someone who had just undermined his own protege at during his testimony at a time when the investigating committee was still in session. It would have been highly inappropriate and in my opinion, possibly unethical. So you have, you know, May 13th, Ryan testifies, May 15th, Quadragesimo Anno is released. And on May 17th, Shahan allegedly says that Ryan was vindicated by Quadragesimo Anno. I don't think so. I think Monsignor Ryan made it up and inserted it into his autobiography just so that he could claim papal endorsement. And there are in fact passages in Quadragesimo Anno that directly contradict certain portions of Monsignor John A. Ryan's interpretation of Catholic social doctrine. Uh, we could do them side by side, but it would take several hours to do it, and we won't do it today, or possibly ever. <laughs> we have more important things to get to. Uh, now, despite clear differences between what Monsignor Ryan said and what the Pope said, Monsignor Ryan's interpretation of Quadragesimo Anno was virtually identical with his interpretation of Rerum Novarum. And he declared that both encyclicals validated his socialist, modernist, and new age thought when they clearly did not. And this is from, this is not me saying this. This is Dr. Franz Müller, who was a student of Father Heinrich Pesch, who pretty much Catholicized and saved solidarism from basically the antics of Emil Durkheim, who posited solidarism as a fascist and socialist theory social theory. Now, so basically Monsignor Ryan's theories directly contradicted Catholic doctrine. He claimed that for one, for instance, that both Raymond Novarum and Quadragesimo were purely ameliorar, um, <laughs> I was going to do that. 
<laughs> I can't pronounce the word. Ameliorative. I think that's it. Uh, in other words, measure, it was, you know, direct help to people was what the, the encyclicals were about, according to Monsignor Ryan. No, that is not what they were talking about. They were talking about restructuring the social order to make it possible for people to take care of themselves. It was not a command that the state take care of people, which imposes on people a state of permanent dependency, which if you're familiar with the history of slavery was a euphemism used for slavery. You make turn someone into a dependent, you've turned them into a slave. In fact, you could say, well, then are children slaves? Well, no, because children expect to be emancipated when they reach the age of majority. In fact, under ancient Roman law, a man's slaves and his children were considered legally the same. The only difference was that a man could decide whether to, to manumit a slave or emancipate his children. Different terms effectively meaning the same thing, meaning no, no, you're no longer a child and dependent or you're no longer a slave or dependent. Now, what essentially Monsignor Ryan's theories were indistinguishable from the new Christianity of Henri de Saint-Simon and of Henry George and of all the other new Christian socialists and modernists of the early 19th century. All he did was dress it up in the new social language doctrine of the church. He turned, he basically eliminated commutative justice and put everything under distributive justice, but commutative justice as explicitly stated in Quadragesimo Anno is the most basic form of justice from which all other forms of justice are derived. Commutative justice just means that if I owe you $5, I have to pay you $5. And if for, it, it's the law of contracts, there must be an equality of status and of exchange in any contract. Distributive justice is simply you know, pro rata justice. It's derived from commutative, uh, but it's pro rata instead. For example, if I contribute 10% to a project, however it's evaluate, valued, uh, I receive 10% of the profits or I suffer 10% of the losses. See, distributive justice is pro rata, commutative justice is equality. So when Monsignor Ryan basically just jettisoned commutative justice, he was jettisoning the foundation of all justice and turned it into a quasi-imposed coercive charity, which he called distributive justice, which wasn't justice at all and it wasn't very distributed. The only thing it did was distribute. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> and his accomplishment, of course, was to institute the new things of socialism, modernism, and the new age as authentic Catholic teaching from which we have yet to dislodge it from its throne. Now, what was the real message, however, of quadragesimo? I'm sorry, I'm tripping over my tongue. Quadragesimo anno and divini redemptoris. In essence, Divini Redemptoris, which came out in 1937 on atheistic communism, was the second half of Quadragesimo Anno. They are two halves of a whole. And Father William Faree, who was one of the co-founders of the Center for Economic and Social Justice, and was probably the world's leading authority in the social doctrine of Pius XI, uh, based his analysis, which came, his doctoral thesis, which came out in 1942 or 43, I think, 
Uh, he earned it in 1941. Uh, you really needed to know that, didn't you? Uh, he, he based his entire analysis on Quadragesimo Anno and Divini Redemptoris to show what the act of social justice as a particular virtue was. Now, the real title of Quadragesimo Anno is On the Restructuring of the Social Order. And as I said, Divini Redemptoris was on atheistic communism. Both together are a total refutation of the new things without while well, missing some practical applications that made it effective, but we won't get into that. Uh, the idea was to restructure the social order so that people could take care of themselves through their own efforts. It was not, as Monsignor Ryan said, for the state to take care of people when they can't take care of themselves. No, in the interim, before you restructure the social order so that people can take care of themselves and be full adults, not dependents, uh, there may be justified some redistribution and state action as an expedient. It is not an end in themselves. It is not as Monsignor Ryan and as so many other people have said, it is not the solution to institute eternal welfare or social security or family allowances or any of these things. Not even job creation, which is a kind of a weird thing if you stop to think about it. When I read in the Wall Street Journal about the jobs market, I thought, what does that even mean? Does an employer go down to the job store and say, oh, I want so many of these jobs and so many of those jobs. Now give me a state subsidy and we'll put them into our company. It's, it's like weatherman. We're going to create 20 million jobs. When you just pull that number out of your hair. <laughs> yeah, why not? It's, it's magic. Of course, I, I won't, as I said, I, I try to keep my promise. We won't get into Keynesian economics in this series. I said, unless of course you read the blog, in which case today's posting was on the complete illogic of Keynesian economics. I found two logical fallacies that feed on each other, which you don't really want to hear about today. What you want to hear about is the Great Depression. If you want to read that, I'll have a link underneath in the show notes. Click the link, you'll go there and you can read the blog. If you want to. Got pretty pictures too. Now, the, the real message of course, was that the human person is the focus, not the state, not the collective. Those are abstractions. The human person is the focus of Catholic social teaching. And of course, of Quadragesimo Anno and Divini Redemptoris. And this is emphasized in Divini Redemptoris in paragraph 29. I hate to do that. It sounds like, you know, these televangelists and everything, as it says in book one of book two and passage such and such, and then they give that passage as if it's the whole argument. Well, there's a whole Bible leading up to that passage. So. so society is made for man, only man, the human person, and not society in any form is endowed with reason and a morally free will. Now, if you give that to a moral philosopher or someone who's an expert in social ethics or even politics, they'll say, oh, Society can't have any rights as society. It's an artificial construct. It's an abstraction created by people for their own uses. It does not have inherent rights. I think we discussed this in, in an earlier video. The whole idea that the state grants rights to people and creates persons is completely the opposite of what the Catholic Church teaches and even what the United States Constitution says. 
The U.S. Constitution has been praised by every pope, or almost every pope, since Pius IX, because it recognizes, and I think it's the only one that does, that the human person has inherent rights simply because he is a human being. The human person delegates rights to the state. The state does not delegate rights to people. The state may define them and, and help implement them and help them in their exercise, but it doesn't create them. God creates rights and he builds them into human nature. That's why they're called natural rights. And that's why it's called the natural law, which is discernible by human reason, which was the first thing said in the Summa Theologica. It was reemphasized at the First Vatican Council in the Oath Against Modernism and in Humani Generis in 1950. Strictly speaking, or as the in 1950 in Humani Generis, absolutely speaking, human reason can discern knowledge of God's existence and of the natural law written in the hearts of all men. Reason is the foundation of faith. It doesn't it can't contradict faith, and it's faith is higher than reason but reason is still the foundation of faith. If your faith contradicts reason or your reason contradicts faith, there's something wrong somewhere. It's like recently in somebody writing about economics, they're saying, you know, economics is not based on ethics or moral philosophy. We must reject it and we must restructure economics to take our faith into consideration. You can't jettison economic laws if they're truly laws. You have to figure out, well, how do my faith and how do my reason fit together, not let's negate one for the other. That's why it's always faith and reason, not faith or reason. Now, <clears throat> what the whole I, Pius XI was the first pope to use the term social justice consistently. But what did he mean by it? Now, as we saw in a prior uh, video, the principle of social justice was developed by a fellow named Monsignor Aloysius Taparelli uh, around 1835-1840. And it was intended specifically to counter socialism and modernism. Uh, excuse me. It was a general virtue guiding individual virtues. In other words, in philosophy, a particular virtue has a defined act and defined everything, you know, they call it the material cause, the efficient cause, you know, the four causes. But you can define what it's acting on and who's doing it and what it is and what form it takes and all that sort of thing. Now you can pass your philosophy 101 course. Uh, and, but under the, a general virtue, there is no defined act, no defined agent. It, it's, it, it's all indirect. And so, under Taparelli's principle of social justice, all acts must conform to the natural law and Catholic doctrine, that is all individual acts. You can't just do what you want because you wanna do it. The end does not justify the means, which is the principle of socialism and modernism. And all individual acts must be performed with an eye to the common good. You can't just say, ah, I see that, I want it, I'll do it, without considering, well, you know, maybe somebody else owns that. Maybe it's there for a reason. Maybe if you did that, you would cause damage to the common good or some institution which would have repercussions all through society. So think about that before you undertake an act, which may be perfectly legitimate in and of itself, but it has certain repercussions that 
are you maybe not considering at first. In that sense, yes, all individual acts are social justice, but only considering social justice as a principle, not a particular virtue. Now, in 1931 and 1937, Pius XI made good on some things that he had said soon after he was elected, mentioning social justice. He defined it as a particular virtue, not just this general principle, a general virtue. And it is a particular virtue directed not to individual good, you know, the good of individuals, but to the good of institutions, to the, to the common good which is baffling to the socialist. As far as the socialists, believe it or not, socialists are not merely collectivists, they're also individualists, which may be a paradox, but that's what they are. They do not understand that you can have an act directed at an abstraction, but not at directly at individuals. It's something that is directed at you know, an institution is indirect on its effect on you know, individuals, whereas an act that is directed toward individuals is indirect in its effect on institutions. It's a rather complex uh, understanding of social virtue versus individual virtue, but this is, what, this is where Pius XI was coming from. The idea of social justice is to make individual virtues possible it does not replace them or substitute for them. If you look at you know, the socialist understanding or the modernist understanding of social justice, it's always things done for the individual. It's, you know, social justice is taking care of people. It's soup kitchens. It's providing family allowances. It's living wage. No, that is still individual in its nature because it is directed to the good of individuals even though it may be every individual in the world, it is still an individual act because it's not directed to the institutions within which people perform individual acts. And <clears throat> what social justice does, is intended to do, is to make it possible for people to help themselves individually or in free association with others. It is not supposed to substitute for, you know, charity or justice, but to make charity and justice possible. Now, this is important, so I'll probably go over it until you're so tired of it, you'll skip ahead and you'll fast forward. So individual virtue versus social virtue. Individual virtue is what benefits individual human persons directly and the common good indirectly. As I said, keep it in mind, it's important. <laughs> and again, Social virtue is what benefits the common good directly and individuals indirectly. Okay, there will be a test on this. <laughs> it's called life. <laughs> now, that raises the question, what is the common good? This is another one. And people like Jacques Maritain, you know, the, the famous Thomas philosopher, he made a mistake here. The common good is not the aggregate of individual goods. Uh, Maritain did not make that mistake. However, what he did make a mistake on was to the idea of the common good, he added goods owned in common. Aquinas specifically warns against that mistake. Goods owned in common are done for the sake of expedience, 
not because they're part of the common good. Common goods are not the common good. I realize this is confusing. It's probably clearer in Latin or maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> I, I had a year of Latin and I'm not very good at it. I can sometimes figure out what's going on, but it's not even as good as my German and my German is lousy. Uh, the common good, and this is the way we use it in CESJ and the way Father Faree said that it is used in the, in the social doctrine of the church. It is that vast network of institutions within which human persons become more fully human, that is virtuous. I mean, you know what the word virtue comes from, literally maleness, but it means, you know, humanness. So becoming virtuous means to become more fully human. You have to say more fully human because in accordance with the first principle of reason, all human beings are as fully human and are human in the same way as all other humans. So even the instant that you, you have a fetus, you know, the zygote that, I think that's what it's called. I, I didn't do well in biology and it was many, many years ago. But the moment you have something that will develop into a human being, it's a human being and is therefore a human person. And it is as much a human being and is human in the same way as even the most, you know, intelligent, handsome, greatest, you know, like me, human being on the face of the earth. Their potential human being and full human being and actual human being are still human beings, fully human and human in the same way. I realize that some people don't want to hear that, but that is philosophically that is the basis for every human being being, you know, that is the, the real equality, not something that's imposed from, from the outside. Now, also, I, I think I, I, I supplied you with a slide that has this, this matrix on it, and it's really neat. <laughs> you can print it out. Uh, it'll, it'll be in our book that's coming up, I hope. <laughs> I said, right now, my, my co-author, Don, is still working on fine-tuning. We've been fine-tuning it now for a year. I hope it's out soon. Uh, I have to quickly, now I have to find my way back because I, uh, I got off track a little bit when I start to lecture on social justice and common good and everything else. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, to, 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 to close that portion, it's like, you know, is something individual or social? And individual will be something like wages, benefits, welfare, family allowances, all that sort of thing, which are intended to assist or benefit human persons directly. See, this whole direct and indirect thing is very important in moral philosophy, especially the social doctrine of Pius XI, because it, it says you don't confuse social justice with individual justice. Now, what is social? removing barriers to full participation in the institutions of the common good so that people can use those institutions to become more fully human. If you prevent human beings from using the institutions that they're qualified to use, what you're doing is saying, you're not qualified to be fully human. We're gonna prevent that. So a, an act of social justice would be something like abolishing Jim Crow laws you know, that prevents some people on the basis of race from participating in certain institutions. Uh, 
restoring sound money and credit so that people can use them the way they were intended to be used to facilitate exchange, not to implement government policy or redistribute. Money and credit are tools used, in, they were invented to help me exchange what I produce for what you produce. That's it, believe it or not. That's the whole real theory of money and credit. Forget about modern monetary theory or Keynesian uh, theory of money or anything else. Now you, know, now you can pass a test on mon monetary theory there. Uh, and, and the reason for, you know, you want sound money and credit is so people can, you know, exchange what they produce and also purchase capital that pays for itself so that they can take care of themselves and produce when technology, for example, displaces human labor. Well, whether you produce with your labor or with your technology, you're still producing. And, and in fact, what you consider social, what falls under social justice is everything intended to restructure the social order directly and reform the common good so that it operates for everybody. So that you can use any institution that you're qualified to use. I mean, I mean, be realistic. You can't have a blind man qualified to drive a car. Although the way some people drive nowadays, I think that they issue license to them anyway. Uh, now, whatever you may call it then, what Monsignor Ryan promoted was not social justice. Uh, in fact, Father Faree and I, this, this is from an unpublished manuscript that he left with us. And frankly, there's not enough of it to publish. And I don't, I wish I knew where he was, had, was going with it, but he died in 1986 and it's kind of hard to ask him. Uh, <clears throat> and he made the comment in this manuscript fragment that, and I think a little bit sarcastically, he said, we can recall here the monumental goodwill and effort of Monsignor John A. Ryan to explain the new social justice as distributive justice. Goodwill is not enough. Now, Father Faree got his doctorate while Monsignor Ryan was still at Catholic U. I think he didn't want to say anything bad about him, but he didn't have anything really good to say about him either. He mentions him three times in his doctoral thesis, and each time in a way that said, basically, Monsignor Ryan didn't understand social justice. Now, uh, so uh, let me get back on track here. I always do that. <laughs> I say, so basically, the New Deal was the opposite of social justice. And it was inherently an offense against the dignity of the human person because what it was doing was instituting ameliorate, keep doing that, ameliorative measures as a solution rather than as a temporary expedient until the social order could be restructured and people could take care of themselves through their own efforts. So that uh, the New Deal was the opposite of social justice, even though. I have books on my shelf, for example, that call the Catholic New Deal and explain how the, the New Deal was quintessential Catholic teaching because Monsignor John A. Ryan said so. And he was basically the, 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 one of the front men among Catholics for the New Deal. And it, it imposed dependency on the state. It offended against human dignity. It instituted, you know, direct aid to people. I'm not going to treat and try to say ameliorate it again. Uh, 
and as, as, as a permanent condition instead of just a temporary help. In other words, a hand up rather than a hand out, as they, as they like to say. Although usually what they mean by that is they don't want to give the hand out either. I don't like either parties. <laughs> uh, now, a lot of people, especially in the Catholic worker movement today, say, you know, think that what the New Deal was talking about was what Dorothy Day was talking about. I got news for them. What Dorothy Day said was probably not what a lot of people in the Catholic worker movement even today think she was saying. She had grave misgivings about the New Deal, sometimes a little bit too far. Uh, in fact, another founder of CES, uh, a co-founder of CESJ was a man who was Dorothy Day's chaplain. He gave the eulogy at her funeral. He was a key member in the New York Catholic worker. And every time, you know, like Commonweal or one of these other Jesuit magazines comes out and tries to turn Dorothy Day into a communist, he is up in arms. Now, I am the first one to say that I don't agree with some of what Dorothy Day said. Sometimes I think, well, she was an individualist, quintessentially so. But she was very suspicious of a lot of stuff that was peddled as social justice. Remember the Catholic Radical Alliance that uh, we spoke of earlier? There was a temporary alliance between the Catholic Radical Alliance and the Catholic Worker Movement. And the story is that they split over the issue of armed resistance to Hitler. Somehow, I don't think that was the issue. From what I've been seeing, I think that the issue was that the Catholic Radical Alliance was the state is everything. The state is a god. And that was 180 degrees from everything that Dorothy Day stood for. I mean, one of the things she liked to do was, rather sarcastically, refer to Holy Mother the State. She didn't trust it. In fact, she described herself on occasion as an anarcho-Catholic, which I think she got from Emmanuel Meunier, which is also wrong, but somewhat easier to take than, than someone who worships the state. She often quoted for, you know, the Catholic Radical Alliance and Monsignor Ryan wanted to effectively abolish private property. Well, whether she understood private property or not, Dorothy Day liked to quote Peter Morin, uh, who I think was quoting somebody else, uh, proper T is proper to man. Nice little alliteration there. And she also liked to quote Thomas Jefferson, another fellow who I have a few issues with. That government governs least, that gov governs best, that governs least. And St. Hilary of Poitiers, and I'm almost finished with the quotes. The less we ask of Caesar, the less we will have to render to Caesar. So if you think that the Catholic Dorothy Day and the Catholic Worker Movement were in favor of all these status programs, uh, you may be misreading Dorothy Day. An admirable person in many ways, I think she had a few wrong ideas, but that this is not the place to discuss them. Now, in the early 1930s, however, there were two people key to FDR getting the Catholic vote. FDR was rather anti-Catholic. He was also a bit of a Jew hater. Uh, as I said, I think Eleanor Roosevelt probably would have made a better president. Maybe too soon for a woman president, but it's not too late. Except I don't think we can clone Eleanor Roosevelt. Uh, now, and then in the, the two people were two priests, of course, Monsignor John A. Ryan, Monsignor New Dealer, 
and Monsignor New Deal and the right Reverend New Dealer, as some people called him in the newspapers, and Father Charles Edward Coughlin. He was known as the radio priest, and he was a bit of a rabble rouser, uh, just a bit. Now, Ryan was, Monsignor Ryan was valuable because he basically carried FDR's message to the intellectuals, to the academics, and sold them on it, even though, as we've seen, <clears throat> the academic integrity, the, the intellectual integrity of Monsignor Ryan's thought was not very high. It was basically academic bullying and politics that forced it through. But it worked for the, you know, the people who think that they're intellectuals, most of them. Now, Father Coughlin, he appealed to the blue collar Catholics, you know, the everyday working people who you would have thought would have been much smarter than this to fall for this stuff. Both were fascist and socialist, although both of them claimed to be attacking the fascists and the socialists. They only differed in particulars. Uh, Monsignor Ryan was actually a longtime Democratic Party supporter. And Father Coughlin, you can only you know, describe him as basically a demagogue. All you'd have to do is listen to some of his radio broadcasts or read some of his books, of which I have, and say, not for me. Although there are still people who swear by him. And they put Coughlin and Ryan in the same category and use them at the same time, even though they were to, they would later have a falling out. And <clears throat> the uh, when I was in, you know, doing my work for my book on the Easter Rising in Dublin in 1916, it turns out that I found that Monsignor Ryan had loudly condemned the Rising, even. And of course, the reason for that it was it was in a footnote. It said some Catholic clerics could detect the accents of God in the pronouncements of officials in the Wilson administration. That's Woodrow Wilson. <coughs> Excuse me, and quickly reflected the opinions of the president. Reverend John A. Ryan was typical of this group. Later, Dr. Ryan went to an extreme in his support of the Roosevelt administration, which of course is how he got the, the label Monsignor New Deal and the right Reverend New Dealer. Um, in one of the biographies of Ryan, Monsignor Ryan that I read, it came across that he was always trying to get in good with Roosevelt. He was always trying to get to the White House, sending notes and everything else, and FDR, would use him, but then ignore him the way he did everyone else that he didn't find useful. I, uh, you've probably never heard of Jim Farley, but he was Roosevelt's right-hand Catholic man for a while. And he wrote two books, one while he was in the Roosevelt administration, in which he was fairly laudatory of Roosevelt with qualifications. Then when Roosevelt betrayed him, he wrote another book that was fairly critical of Roosevelt with reservations. Farley was a gentleman and he wasn't going to attack anybody all out, but he did make it clear that basically Roosevelt would use people and then just throw, toss them aside the moment they weren't useful. You've never seen that before, have you? Uh, now, what, excuse me, uh, Roosevelt basically, and this was the bad Roosevelt, FDR, not the good Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt. <laughs> uh, he used Monsignor Ryan and Father Coughlin to very good advantage. He downplayed his, his personal aversion to Catholics and Jews to get their votes. He needed them. Al Smith had scared the, the heck out of Herbert Hoover. 
Uh, you remember Al Smith, the happy warrior. Uh, not, not the guy right now with the Fulton Sheen Foundation in Toronto, near, in, in Quebec. I'm, I'm in trouble now with the Canadians. <laughs> Up there someplace in the great white north. Uh, and Jewish and Catholic leaders were either misled by Roosevelt or they basically swallowed his insults for what they considered the greater good. In other words, the country was in danger. Let's get these things done, not realizing that they were pretty much selling their soul down the river, which is the way Jim Farley put it later. Uh, Roosevelt actually twisted Quadragesimo Anno to support the New Deal. He gave a speech in the, put in quotes, Catholic city of Detroit, in which his speechwriters found some passages that could be used to good effect there without Roosevelt, of course, meaning a single word that he said. And that's where Coughlin came in to, to really sell it there. And there is no evidence that Ryan and Coughlin had any real influence on the New Deal. Uh, Franz Miller thought that Monsignor Ryan did have a great deal of influence, but in my opinion, it was simply a congruence of thought, not because he influenced it. And Roosevelt found him very useful until he didn't. He actually, Monsignor Ryan actually gave the, the invocation at two of Roosevelt's you know, uh, inaugurations. And then of course, tossed him aside. Uh, now, to also to be perfectly honest, not all Catholics went along with uh, FDR's program or with Monsignor Ryan. Some members of the, of the hierarchy spoke of increasing agitation of cunning propagandists, by which they meant both Ryan and Coughlin. Uh, some groups like the Central Bureau of the Catholic Central Union of America in St. Louis, uh, which just celebrated centenary a couple of years ago, it's kind of queer, you know, inactive right now, but it can be revived. Send your money into them, you know. <laughs> they always need money. Uh, Father Edward Krauss, who's a friend of mine, is, is, is head of that right now. He's in semi-retirement at the University of Notre Dame at Holy Cross House, so you can... Uh, do whatever. Let me get back on track here again. <laughs> too many digressions, too many digressions. Uh, but they were not all that enthusiastic. But in any event, Ryan and Coughlin secured the support of most of the hierarchy and the laity for the New Deal at a critical time, and that's all FDR wanted, then he could toss them aside. Uh, at one point, uh, Dr. Harry Elmer Barnes of Columbia University, and I quadruple checked yeah, apparently his name was Harry, not Harold. He, later, he was noted for being a Holocaust denier and a few other things and a historical revisionist. But his importance here was that in 1931, I believe, let me check, let's see, 34, sorry. Uh, he stated in a column that Ryan and Coughlin, uh, you know, were a good team. They were uh, both consistent with the with the theories of Henry George, as usual, and were fully compatible. And that Ryan and Coughlin were endorsing each other. And a couple of weeks later, Monsignor Ryan did come out and endorse Father Coughlin explicitly. And I got this from the Pittsburgh Press, January 9th, nineteen thirty-four. Monsignor John A. Ryan has come out for Father Coughlin. 
Ryan says that while he does not agree with everything the radio priest has said, he feels Father Coughlin is, quote, on the side of the angels, unquote, and is especially to be complimented for his work in stirring up the masses. In other words, inciting them to, uh, to violence and everything else, for which the Catholic Radical Alliance would go after Fulton Sheen, saying that he can blame labor for all the, uh, actually, the was a false accusation. Fulton Sheen had not blamed labor for all the agitation and the violence. But here was uh, Ryan praising Coughlin for stirring up the working classes to violence. Not a little bit of hypocrisy there. <clears throat> now, everything was going fine and dandy until the second part of the New Deal, which Father Charles Coughlin didn't think went far enough. So he attacked Roosevelt for not doing what he thought should have been done with the New Deal. The fat was now in the fire. Father Coughlin went over to Huey Long, the kingfish. You know, you've heard about him. Interestingly enough, Huey Long was the father of Senator Russell Long. And Senator Russell Long was the man who eventually became the champion of the employee stock ownership plan in, in the Senate. He said, he, he had first rejected it on the grounds that he said, this sounds like like one of my daddy's programs. <laughs> so he said, which was, you know, Robin Hood populism, steal from the rich, give to the poor. And, you know, Huey Long had the share our wealth program and would limit it, basically socialism. Uh, but interestingly enough, did you know that uh, Huey Long was the second most popular man in America in the 1930s? Do you know who was the most popular? Tarzan of the Apes. I didn't make that up. <laughs> I don't mean Johnny Weissmuller. I mean the character, the fictional character invented by Edgar Rice Burroughs. <laughs> now, Father Coughlin threw his support from FDR to Huey Long in 1936. It wasn't too long after that uh, Huey Long was assassinated. And to his dying day, his son, Russell Long, was convinced that you know, Roosevelt had arranged that somehow or had caused it. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not going to get into that kind of conspiracy theory or hopefully any kind of conspiracy theory. I'll, I try to deal in facts, except, of course, when people are coming after me. You know. <laughs> um, now, Monsignor Ryan, therefore, went after Father Coughlin and attacked him. He said he was now 90% wrong. Let's see. And... Uh, <laughs> is that I, I, I lose my place when I start ranting. Uh, and of course, Coughlin was not the sort, of sort to take this lying down. He counterattacked. And frankly, from the reports I've read in the newspapers, I was having fun looking this one up in the Library of Congress. I mean, it was near hysteria. They're going back and forth, accusing each other of everything under the sun. And finally, <laughs> I, I even found the... Uh, Archbishop uh, Curley of Baltimore, you know, the de facto informal head of the American church. On October 16th, 1936, says Coughlin and Ryan asked to shut up. That's from the newspaper. He didn't actually say shut up. But what he did say, it says that, you know, Archbishop Curley of Baltimore, he suggested that Ryan and Coughlin should do a great favor to the church and to the country at large by retiring for some time to the Carthusian order where perpetual silence is observed. 
Okay, I'll grant you shut up. <laughs> Close enough to shut up, yeah. <laughs> now, it gets worse, though. Uh, thing was that Cardinal Pacelli, who was at that time Vatican Secretary of State and who later became Pope Pius XII, visited the U.S. at this time. And he refused to have anything to do with either Monsignor Ryan or Father Coughlin. Of course, part of this might have to do that he was on friendly terms with Fulton Sheen, and he knew what Ryan had done to Sheen. I think the popes knew very well what was going on at the Catholic University of America and tried very hard to stop it. But as we saw, for instance, more recently with the, with the Father Curran episode, it's almost impossible to get these guys out. Once they're in, they're in. And they start waving the academic freedom flag and oppression and you know the, the, the Monty Python bit, I'm being oppressed. They, they'll do it at the drop of a hat and usually those are the ones doing the oppressing. Now- uh, The lady at the lake threw a scimitar at me. <laughs> and then pulled out a submachine gun. Let's see, okay, oh yeah, don't worry. We're on the home stretch pretty near. Uh, now, uh, actually, as, as Pope, Pius XII, you know, the former Cardinal Pacelli's Vatican Secretary of State, in 1939 issued Certum Letizia to the church in the United States, and paragraph 30 was widely taken as a rather strong rebuke to Father Coughlin. Not so much to Ryan, his stuff was more hidden from, from the public view. So Coughlin was the one that they had to control or at least try to. And in section 30, it says, we have learned with not little joy that your press is a sturdy champion of Catholic principles, that the Marconi radio is frequently and advantageously put to use in order to ensure the widest possible promulgation of all that concerns the church and we commend the, the good accomplished. That, to me, is a clear reference to Fulton Sheen, whose Catholic Hour was, uh, it, there were supposed to be other people on the Catholic Hour, but it ended up being pretty much almost 100% Fulton Sheen, which a lot of people liked, and apparently the Pope did too. But the rest of the passage in paragraph 30 continues, but let those who fulfill this ministry be careful to adhere to the directives of the teaching church even when they explain and promote what pertains to the social problem. Forgetful of personal gain, despising popularity, impartial, let them speak as from God before God in Christ. In other words, Father Coughlin, start, stop putting your own interests and your own views in front of people. Of course, this was also the time when he was being, you know, making some very wild anti-Semitic statements, which when he started making them, as he had made them, very early in the 1930s on, Monsignor John A. Ryan was shocked, shocked to find out that Father Coughlin was anti-Semitic. Remember the scene in Casablanca? I'm shocked, shocked to find gambling going on here. Shocked, shocked, I tell you. <laughs> now, whoa, then this is interesting. In Also in 1936, it seemed to be a busy year for Ryan, Coughlin, FDR, and Fulton Sheen. In As he, excuse me, as Fulton Sheen related in his autobiography, and as I keep saying, I'm not making any of this up. I take this all from hard sources, and this is from Fulton Sheen's autobiography. Uh, I even have the page here someplace. Where did I put it? Uh, 
No, I don't have the page written down, but if you're familiar, if you have a copy of the book, you can find it real easy. Uh, in 1936, at the request of a friend of his named Eddie, Fulton Sheen met with FDR to ask for a job. And Fulton Sheen said his friend really needed the job. Uh, and he had done a great deal for, for, for Roosevelt. And so because he was a good friend, Sheen decided that he would set aside his aversion to politics and intercede for his friend with Roosevelt. Now, during, and remember, I'm getting this from Fulton Sheen's autobiography. During the meeting, Roosevelt acted kind of crazy. It was rather erratic. He ranted and he shouted. He was making false accusations against Fulton Sheen and other you know, prominent Catholics, including Cardinal Mundelein, who had done FDR a huge favor the prior year when Roosevelt was doing nothing, not even issuing a formal protest about the persecutions in Mexico. Cardinal Mundelein, when he was at a, gave a speech at Notre Dame and he defused the situation, he basically explained away Roosevelt's inaction, which helped get Roosevelt elected, which of course Roosevelt didn't give a damn, you know, once he got it, who cares? He'll accuse Mundelein of supporting the fascists and everything else in, in Spain. And I forget all the stuff he was doing. Fulton Sheen listened out. Uh, however, finally, when Roosevelt calmed down, I think it sounded like he was nuts. Uh, he said, you call Eddie, and, and, and Sheen had explained why he wanted the meeting, finally. Uh, he says, you call Eddie and tell him he has the job. So, of course, Fulton Sheen went back and spoke to, to his friend Eddie, and he said, when I left the White House, I called Eddie and said, Eddie, I saw the president. I am sorry you did not get the job. He said, is that what the president said after all I did for him? I said, no, he said you would have the job. You would have it. My friend never received the job. So Fulton Sheen could read people pretty well, I think. I, re I remember, well, <laughs> I, I could talk to Fulton Sheen for another show. I mean, come to think of it, we did, didn't we? <laughs> okay, we're on, this, this is the, we're, we're getting to the conclusion now, finally. Uh, frankly, Ryan pretty much destroyed a sound understanding of Catholic social teaching. Uh, as Franz Miller remarked in his book on the church and the social question, he said, you know, under Hitler, social Catholicism, in, social Catholicism one of these days I'm going to learn how to talk, then you'll really have a show, uh, in Germany and Austria pretty much died. Uh, so there were, there were no independent movements in Italy, Spain, or Portugal. Uh, and then the countries that were conquered by the Nazis, such as France, Catholic social leaders were arrested in hiding or in exile. I mean, there was no continuity. Hitler cut it all off in Europe. Uh, and this is from, this is a quote from Franz Miller's book. So perhaps the only nation in which the Catholic social movement and a movement it now was, could continue to operate with almost undiminished vigor was the United States. Now keep in mind, Franz Miller had just spent about 40 or 50 pages harshly criticizing Monsignor Ryan's interpretation of Catholic social doctrine. And here he is pointing out that, unfortunately, Monsignor Ryan ruled the interpretation of Catholic social doctrine in the United States and with the destruction by Hitler of uh, 
you know, the, the continuity of Catholic, the Catholic social movement in Europe, the one in the United States was the only one left. And he said, he continued, under the leadership of John A. Ryan, social Catholicism in this country enjoyed during the depression something approaching official recognition. Sort of, as we saw, FDR had no hesitation in using Catholics like Ryan and Coughlin, but he was not influenced by them. But he did use it, you know, the similarities between Ryan's interpretation of Catholic social doctrine and the New Deal to great advantage. So as Miller concluded, he says, Ryan Rose in a manner to be the architect of social legislation in this country. That's his opinion, it's not mine. Uh, enjoying the special confidence of Frank, President Franklin D. Roosevelt. Well, special confidence means that Roosevelt used him to good effect, but then brushed him aside as soon as he didn't need him anymore. And that was pretty much how the stage was set for the nuttiness we see, you know, infecting the church today, at least with respect to the interpretation of social doctrine. Socialism, modernism, and new age thought became embedded as the right way to understand Catholic social doctrine. And therefore you have to start twisting and bending theology and philosophy to fit that interpretation rather than try to figure out how to interpret Catholic social teaching in light of exist of the existing magisterium. I mean, once you understand, this is one of the reasons why this has taken so long to get to this point, and we're only halfway through. Uh, to, to, you know, when, once you realize that all the crazy ideas that you know bubbled to the surface during the 19th century found expression, and were able to twist something as solidly based on philosophy, theology, and just plain common sense as Catholic social doctrine and turn it into socialism and modernism, you realize the power that these people had that they used to very ill effect. Yeah, makes sense on that part, yeah. And that's also why we spent so much time getting up to this point, even though some of it was pretty juicy, I'll admit. But <laughs> Imagine if you put in everything that you wanted to put in. Oh, man, I have been working on the book on this for about, let's see... Okay, I've been working on the manuscript itself for about five years. <laughs> and I've found out so much more that I have to do a complete revision of the stupid thing. Uh, no, it's not, excuse me, the intelligent thing. <laughs> <laughs> but the, re the research went on for like 20, 30 years before that. Man. I mean, just, the more I find out, the more I realize, wow, this is so... What they told me about the Catholic social teaching is 180 degrees from what it looks like when you look at the facts. So what can, uh, what can the guys uh, look forward to next week? Well, next week, and I, and I have it outlined already. I was on a roll over the weekend. <laughs> We're going to look at the Fabian Society, the wolf in sheep's clothing. We have to backtrack a little bit, even more than we did in this show. I think everybody will forgive you for that. <laughs> oh, you're not. This is. It gets wild again. As if this wasn't wild enough. Yeah, when did it, when did it not stop getting wild? <laughs> it's, 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 talk about the surreal life. <laughs> well, looking forward to it, Michael. Appreciate it as always. Uh, it, it's fun. I, I mean that sincerely. Wow, I'm mean, uh, saying that too. Yeah, I look forward to Tuesday mornings. Oh shoot! I just gave away when we're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we could change. Actually. 
We didn't say what part of the world it was Tuesday. You didn't hear that. These are not the droids you're looking for. <laughs> Michael, take care. Okay.